Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 8 and to the very, very last verse of that chapter in God's Word. While you're turning there, I want to mention a couple of resources that I have up here and invite you to take advantage of. I have some more copies of this book by Derek Thomas called Let's Study Revelation. So the perspective I've taken on uh, going through Revelation is a little different maybe than a lot of us grew up with. Derek Thomas, you might recognize the name from Ligonier Ministries. He's a frequent teacher on R.C. Sproul's a lot of his conferences and uh, teaching sessions. And this is a very accessible book uh, on the book of Revelation. It's not a technical commentary. It's uh, written so just the everyday person like me can understand it. I have come to appreciate it greatly. So that's up here, and, and come see me if you want a copy of that. I also have another book that I think is really great. You know, we, we live in an era when the instances of depression and suicide have just absolutely skyrocketed, and that's true even amongst believers. And I have a, a great little book called Spurgeon's Sorrows, and it's a book about depression. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, uh, regularly suffered from debilitating depression, and this is a really excellent book. Very helpful, I think, if you... Uh, struggle with that or if you know someone who does so anyway those are available come see me if you're interested in either one of those so revelation chapter 8 verse 13 that's the last verse and going through chapter 9 verse 12 that's our portion for this morning so let's read that before we start today hear the word of the lord then i looked and i heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days... People will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king. They have as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. 
and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. I can hear your thoughts even now. You think that's really a good choice for a Sunday morning sermon, Pastor Rob? And I too had the same thoughts as I've been looking ahead to see this passage of God's Word, but we're reminded that um, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that includes these verses that I've just read. So let's look to them today for profit that God would speak through these verses to us. Even these, what sounds like bizarre things. Uh, let's pray that he will use that in our lives this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, help us now with your Spirit to understand these unusual verses before us. We pray through Christ. Amen. The hounds of hell are supposedly supernatural creatures found in Greek mythology and also the folklore of many cultures around the world, especially uh, Northern Europe. Uh, and while they go by different names, depending on what country you're from, they're all described in basically the same way. I'm not sure if this is a hellhound or just a dog with really bad breath, but let's assume it's a, a depiction of a hellhound. Uh, their characteristics, large supernatural dogs with mangled black fur, glowing red eyes, super strength and speed, and the foul smell of brimstone. And some cultures, meeting one of these hounds is a sure sign of your imminent death. Uh, in other places, it's looking into their glowing red eyes that brings death. In the north of England, there are several tales of hellhounds lying in wait for unsuspecting travelers on lonely roads and remote valleys. In the Psalms, King David describes his enemy, enemies in a way that's similar to this. In Psalm 22, he says, Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. In Psalm 59, he says of his enemies, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. And like King David, sometimes, sometimes you and I even say that someone or something is dogging our steps, hounding us, pursuing us. Of course, our passage today doesn't mention dogs anywhere. But it does describe something that's very similar to the hounds of hell. Something that dogs the steps of unbelievers. All, all seven of the trumpet judgments that we began studying, uh, looking at in particular last week, all seven of these judgments in this third section of the book of Revelation uh, are directed toward those who have never put their faith in the atoning death of Christ. Uh, 
while the seals before this uh, had a lot to do with believers, uh, these seven trumpets are warnings directed specifically to those without Christ. We examined four of these last Sunday. Uh, we begin to hear the sounding of the trumpets, and we saw the first four. They, are, uh, they go together kind of like the first four seals do, the, the four horsemen. Uh, and these four trumpets are grouped together as well, and we saw that these first trumpets bring into the, the, this world increasing famine, increasing upheaval, uh, increasing bitterness and increasing darkness into the world of, of those without Christ. And except for the seventh trumpet that comes at the end of chapter 11, um, at the end of the age, uh, the rest of the trumpet judgments, including the one we'll look at today, occur throughout this age. These aren't judgments that are confined to a period of time in the future, except for the seventh, of course, the return of Jesus. These six occur throughout the age that we now live in. And at the very least, looking at, at this fifth trumpet gives us insight into the age that we live in. And at the very least, I hope it's profitable in that way. As this fifth trumpet sounds, something akin to the hounds of hell are set loose on unbelievers. Uh, this, we'll see, uh, leads to increasing despair in the world. If you're following along on the back of your bulletin, uh, this is uh, what that fifth line represents. Increasing despair. There are three aspects of this fifth trumpet that I want to point out to you from God's word this morning. The first aspect of this trumpet is a fierce opponent. Our adversary, the devil, is granted limited power to bring disaster on the world of unbelievers. And I want to mention five things. Uh, there are five characteristics of this opponent that we'll see in the verses before us. The first thing we find is a warning about this opponent. Uh, look at the source of this warning again in chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Eagles are sometimes used in Scripture to indicate that judgment is approaching. The word eagle can just as easily be translated vulture. You know, we see vultures circling overhead. Sometimes we have a sense of, of dread. I remember when we were meeting down the road, 462 Scott Road, I pulled up to the church one morning, and there were three vultures sitting on the front lawn. And I began to wonder whether I should just keep right on driving and head back home. But I went in, and the day passed without incident. But that's the kind of, kind of sense you get from verse 13, this source, the source of this warning is, a, is an eagle or vulture, a, a sure sign that something dreadful is about to happen. And then you see the content of their warning next. They cry, whoa, 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 which is an exclamation. It could be translated, alas, uh, or even disaster. Um, note that it, it's used three times. In the world of the Bible, that is significant. Uh, when 
You want to emphasize something, you'd say it twice. Remember how often in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, meaning I tell you most solemnly. And then if you've heard R.C. Sproul speak on the holiness of God, you've heard him talk about Isaiah chapter 6, where, where something is used three times. Three times is the utmost of something. And so when the angels say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, it means he's utterly and uh, holy to an extraordinary degree. And so when you see it three times here, we, we take notice that this is uh, disaster, uh, extraordinary disaster that is about to be unleashed. Far worse than the first four trumpets that we looked at last Sunday, this, the remaining three, are really something to sit up and pay attention to. And then, then I want you to see who this is directed at. Who is this warning uh, proclaimed to? Uh, verse 8 finishes, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. That does not refer to every resident on the planet. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, we've seen before. That's a reference specifically to those without Christ. Those who've made the earth their permanent home. Not, not believers who are aliens and strangers and sojourners in this world. This is a reference specifically, as we've seen previously in Revelation, to those without Christ. This warning comes uh, to them. So first we see a warning about this first opponent, as well as the two remaining trumpets that follow. And then second, we're, we're um, given an indication of who this is. We see his identity described uh, to us next. That's the second thing. Look at verse, uh, verse 1 of the next chapter. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Fallen describes action in the past. The star has already fallen. And I believe this is the same star we saw last week in chapter 8, verse 10. If you look across the page, uh, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. We describe that as a description of Satan, who fell from his uh, privileged position as one of God's angels. And I, I, I pointed out this in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 is a taunt to the king of Babylon, but, but the words go beyond history, and they, they describe the fall of Satan. Listen to Isaiah 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You can hear references to the king of Babylon, but, but as Joel Beakey points out, that, that seems to go beyond a, a historical description of the king of Babylon to, to something of more significance, the fall of Satan. Ezekiel 28 also says, uh, something similar. It describes the king of Tyre. But, but you read this and go, well, that surely goes beyond the description of the king of Tyre. Listen to this one. You were in Eden 
the garden of God, you were an anointed guardian cherub. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. This begins to describe this fierce opponent. It's Satan. And look down in verse 11 of our, our chapter, chapter 9. It says, They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Both those names uh, mean destruction or the destroyer. And Jesus identifies this as one of Satan's primary purposes, destruction. He says so in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And then Peter describes Satan's purpose in these familiar words to us, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Dr. Joel Beakey comments, Infernal forces and powers are seeking to destroy mankind. Satan and his demons want to destroy every human being. This identifies uh, the, the fierce opponent here as Satan. I want you to see, third, the power that he has uh, in this, this next thing. The power of this first opponent is described as verse 1 continues, and we see that it's power that's limited by Christ. Look again uh, with verse 1, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, I want you to Take note of that phrase. There's something very important to see. Look at how it's stated. And he, Satan, was given the key. If you think back to your English class with me, that's the passive voice. It indicates that Satan has to receive permission to do this. So he was given this key. Well, who gives Satan this power? This key, well, uh, a key is a symbol of authority, and, and who possesses all power and authority in heaven and earth? We read about it back in chapter 1. It says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It is Jesus Christ the ruler of the universe who allows Satan a limited amount of power. Any power or permission granted to him must work to accomplish our Heavenly Father's purpose. Now, that's a tall drink of water. I understand it. It's a tall drink of water for me. But listen to uh, uh, this man describe it. Very good. His name is Dr. Doug Kelly. He says, in a holy way, those are important words, in a holy way, hidden from our eyes, God turns a precise amount of destructive power over to Satan 
to let loose upon the earth. But again, every bit of this destructive power is used to fulfill God's ultimate purpose for history. We see an example of this in the book of Job. If you read Job chapters 1 and 2, you'd see that Satan can't touch Job, can't lay a finger on Job without the express permission of God. Have you considered my servant Job, he says. And Satan says, well, you've put a hedge around him. I can't touch him. We see this same limited power of the devil as as Jesus speaks to Peter in Luke 22. Think about this, uh, if I can get my thing. Power, there, I missed a verse apparently. No, I'm, excuse me. Here's what Luke 22 says. <laughs> Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Anything Satan does, he does only with God's permission. And anything that Satan does must conform to uh, God's ultimate purpose. Martin Luther said it like this. And this sounds strange, but think about what, it's, what it says. There is a devil, but it is God's devil. Meaning that God has complete control of anything Satan does. And what this means, it's very important to us. What this means is there are not two equal and opposing forces in the universe. There are not. There is not a yin and a yang. Opposite forces of good and evil. Uh, friend, there is one supreme authority that rules the universe. And everything that takes place in his universe must accomplish his ultimate purpose. He is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Satan is not sovereign. Satan can only affect what Christ Jesus allows him to affect. And Jesus describes this in Mark 3. Uh, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That's describing what Christ has done to Satan in this age. He is on a long chain. He is restrained and can only do what Christ allows him to do. So this is the power of this fierce opponent, but it's, it's limited power, uh, thank God. Uh, the fourth thing I want you to see about this fierce opponent is his domain, the realm over which he has authority. Uh, we see this uh, back in the middle of verse 1. If you'd go back there, it says, and he was given the key to the shaft the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit, also uh, referred to as hell, refers uh, to, the, uh, to the abyss where evil spirits are imprisoned. 
Peter describes this in 2 Peter 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, that is, fallen angels, angels who were swept out of heaven with the devil when he was cast out, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There's a reference there. And then Jude, verse 6, says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, again, with the devil when he was forced out, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And when the demons that Jesus cast out pleaded with him. Remember, they pleaded to be sent into a herd of pigs. Uh, they begged Christ, saying these words. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. This very place, from this abyss, this bottomless pit, this place of gloomy darkness, Satan is allowed to release a host of evil spirits, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that we read about in Ephesians 6. Satan, has domain, his domain is over these forces and, and sits over them as their king. Look down at verse 11. It says, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. This is Satan's domain. This is the domain of this fierce opponent. And then lastly, about this fierce opponent, we see the darkness he spreads. If you look at verse 2 now, it says, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from that shaft. Uh, Satan works in darkness and delusion and deception describing uh, those apart from Christ. Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the, glorious, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, Satan is the father of lies, uh, described so by Jesus in John 8, and he works in darkness and delusion and deception. So bringing this all together, uh, listen to this one Bible scholar. He says, it is as if hell itself breaks loose to mar, pollute, and defile God's creation. This enormous furnace serves to portray hell itself from which clouds of smoke ascend to darken the light of the sun and pollute the air, making breathing nearly impossible. Evil is like a dense cloud that turns the world into darkness and suffocates all those, those who are breathing its polluted air. This is what the first trumpet reveals to begin with. It reveals a fierce opponent, the devil, and describes, says five things about him, these five characteristics we just looked at. This trumpet goes further. There's another aspect of this trumpet. Not only is there a fierce opponent, what we see described next is uh, a flood 
of demons. A fierce opponent to begin with. And now the second aspect of this trumpet judgment is a flood of demons. The hounds of hell are released to torment the unbelieving world. And as with the last one, there are five things here I want you to see as well. First thing I want you to see about this flood of demons is their number. Uh, Their number, John says that they swarm like locusts in verse 3. It says, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. These are not real locusts that we're reading about. Remember that these creatures were released from the bottomless pit, the abyss. This is a description of fallen angels, angels that fell with Satan. These are demons. These are rulers and authorities, as we read in Ephesians 6, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Well, if that's the case, why does John talk about them as locusts? John's borrowing language from the book of Joel. And he's saying that these demons swarm like locusts swarm. This invading army swarms over the unbelieving world the way that locusts swarm and devour all plant life in their path. According to one source, locusts can swarm uh, in a column that is up to 100 feet deep and four miles long. And uh, when a swarm like this comes through, it strips the land of all vegetation in its path. Perhaps you remember last Sunday that Africa was plagued by locusts. Uh, An NPR report from last summer, this is what a locust swarm looks like. Titanic swarms of desert locusts resembling dark storm clouds are descending ravenously on the Horn of Africa. They're roving through croplands and flattening farms in a devastating salvo that experts are calling an unprecedented threat to food security. On the ground, subsistence planters can do nothing but watch, staring up with horror at their fields and dismay. And so John is not seeing locusts like this. He is seeing an invading army of demons that swarm like locusts. And so we see the number of these demons that are let loose. Jeff, help me here. Uh, let loose on the, on the world. We see their number. And then secondly, note their power. Um, John describes the power given to these. In verse 3, as it goes on, it says, And they were given power like the power of scorpions on earth. Again, Look at that phrase, they were, were given. It's another passive voice, just like the one in verse 1. Uh, it's called a divine passive. This flood of demons, like Satan before, can only do what Christ allows. Uh, like Satan, their king, these are under the sovereign control and authority of Christ. We see their limited power throughout this. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth. And then verse 5. They were allowed to torment them. And so while these are set loose, this flood of demons, they are not free to do as they please. Uh, God allows them to be released in His judgment upon 
the world of those who don't know Christ. And then this brings us directly to their target. And this, is, this is most important that we see who is targeted by this flood of demons. We read Ephesians 6, 10-20 in our scripture reading, and we're familiar with those words that uh, describe believers as the target of those unseen spiritual forces. But this is different. Here in Revelation 9, the, the people targeted by these cosmic powers of evil are not believers, but unbelievers. Look at the middle of verse 3, and let's read further. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're forbidden to touch plant life. Another indication that we're not dealing with real locusts. Their diet, so to speak, is those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's a reference to all those who have never put their faith in the atoning death of Christ. Those who have never trusted in Him as their Savior and Lord. It's the same group described earlier by the phrase, those who dwell on earth. We've seen earlier in chapter 7, believers are sealed by the Spirit of God at the moment of their conversion. God marks believers as His possession and protects them from spiritual harm. Back in chapter 7, we saw that believers were sealed with the name of God on their foreheads and protected through this period of great tribulation uh, by the hand of God. Believers are protected from the sting of this demonic horde. Dr. Doug Kelly says this passage teaches that the simplest humblest true believer is always kept safe from having his or her soul invaded by evil spirits. That's really important for you to grasp that. But unbelievers are not protected from the torment of these spiritual forces of darkness. I want you to just notice that here Satan and his forces are attacking their own followers. Those under the power of the evil one are attacked by the evil one and his lot. And make no mistake, friend, if you're not one of Christ's, Make no mistake, friend. The Bible says, if you're not one of Christ's, then you're one of His. It's a very offensive thing to say. Very offensive thing to say in the year 2020. But you must hear the testimony of God's Word on this. If you're not one of Christ's, 
you're one of his, the evil ones. Romans 6, and, and so you might object, no, I, I'm nobody's. I, I, I'm nobody's slave, I'm nobody's fool. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to follow Christ, I'm not going to follow the evil one either, you're just wrong. Well, I would just, in my humble opinion, the Word of God trumps your opinion and says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's an either-or thing. There's no middle ground of, of neutrality. There's no no-man's land for you to stand in. And then from Hebrews... Uh, listen to this description in Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's humans, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things he took on flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And finally, and this is, I think, the worst one, is from 1 John. It, this is evident. But this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's no no man's land, no middle ground. You're either Christ's or you're his. And if you're his, then you're going to be subject to the torment of this horde. If you're Christ's, they cannot lay a finger on you. We see uh, the target of this flood of demons. Uh, we've looked at their power, their target. Next, I want you to see what's described is their as their sting, and we'll get to that final point up there in just a minute. Uh, their sting first, verse 3, it says they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And then verse 5, glance down there, it says in verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And then down uh, to verse 10, they have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Scorpion stings are usually not fatal, but they are extremely painful. Uh, so painful that John uses the word torment. It could also say torture. But John's describing, again, spiritual beings, uh, demons, and so their torture is spiritual in nature as well. These demons are given the power to invade the minds and hearts of the lost and torment them mentally and spiritually. They, they bring out the gnawing hunger and spiritual emptiness of, of, of uh, living life in rebellion to God. They bring home uh, to, the, to an unbeliever the truth that the wages of sin is death. 
It's extraordinary and unpleasant what, what they go through. And you might object. <laughs> I, I know people who don't know Christ and you know they're not tortured. And I would simply say, you want to bet? Can you see inside their mind? They might not act like they're tortured, but the truth is that inside they experience this death-like quality of life the Bible promises to those. But look, friend, even here, we see the mercy of God because they're only allowed to torment them for a limited period of time. Verse 5 says five months, and that's the normal lifespan of a locust. And, and John's probably not referring to a concrete number, but only to say that their torment is limited by God. Even, even yet, even now, He has mercy that they might turn from their sin and trust in Christ. We see their sting. And then lastly here, look at the effect that this has. Look at the effect in verse 6. And in those days, which are these days, in those days people will seek death. It's a continuous verb. They'll keep on seeking death. They'll always be seeking death and will not find it, a strong negative, and will by no means find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them, flee from them. They will be unable to take their own lives. This is the effect of this flood of demons. Their mental and spiritual torture will be so intense and so effective that those who don't know Christ, will long to die. Now, I just want, want you to stop and ask, is this not something we see in the world? This increasing despair uh, amongst those who live in the world without Christ. I, I obviously believe it is something we see. And it stems from this flood of demons and the five things that we've seen about them. There's one more aspect of this trumpet that I want to show you. Uh, we've seen a fierce opponent. We've seen a flood of demons second. And then thirdly, in this trumpet, we're going to see a, a ferocious appearance. Help me out, Jeff. I'm stuck. There we go. A ferocious appearance. And here, John struggles to describe what he's seeing in this vision. I mean, he's at a loss for words. And, and we know he's at a loss for words because of the number of times. It's each phrase. He uses the word like. It was like this. It was like this. He's, just, he's never seen anything like this. This appearance of this demonic force. And he struggles uh, to describe it. Six things here, but very briefly now. Um, these will go rather quickly. He says first that they're ready in verse 7. Uh, 
In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Now, like, like horses uh, uh, that paw the ground, ready to attack. These demons are ready and anxious to do battle. It says next that they're victorious, as verse 7 goes on. On their heads there were what looked like crowns of gold. This refers to the laurel wreath that the winners of the games would wear. These demons will, will triumph. They'll succeed in their mission. It says next that they're intelligent, as verse 7 concludes. It says their faces were like human faces, meaning that they appeared to have intelligence and discernment. Uh, one man says the locusts appear with human faces indicating intelligence, wisdom, and discernment. They are demonic creatures with the mental power of rational beings to inflict untold misery on those people who rebel against their Lord and Maker. Uh, fourth, John says that they're alluring, and this is in the beginning of, of uh, verse 8, their hair like women's hair. Again, difficult vision, difficult uh, reference, might refer to sexual uh, immorality, the allurement of sexual immorality, but this is tied very closely to the next half of verse 8, and John goes on to say in verse 8, Next, he says that they are ferocious. I'm stuck, Jeff. Go ahead. And... Yeah. Just go ahead and put them all up. There you go. I don't want to mess with that anymore. Ferocious, as verse 8 continues. They're teeth like lion's teeth. And one scholar, I believe, gets at the heart of what this verse is about. And, and uh, the way these two things go together, and he writes, John writes the phrases, hair of women and teeth like those of lions, to express figuratively demonic deception on one hand and ferocious attack on the other. Female hair is pleasing to the eye. The contrast between its charm and the ferocity of the teeth is striking in its symbolism. The teeth of lions symbolize savagery and cruelty to satisfy a voracious appetite. For Satan and his demonic forces seek to entice human beings and ultimately destroy them. So fourth and fifth, we see that they are both alluring and ferocious at the same time. We see, we see next that they are invincible in verse 9. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Um, they are invincible. And then Ninth and last, they're demoralizing. John describes their appearance as, as uh, terrifying. Verse 9 continues, And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. That's what an approaching army would sound like to its defenders. The ground would thunder with the hoofbeats and metallic noises of rapidly approaching chariots, and that noise of approaching battle would likely melt the hearts of the men on the walls defending. Again, uh, this description says it well, the thundering hooves of horses and the whirring wheels of chariots in ancient days turned the tide of battle when they outnumbered those of their opponents. The reference 
to the sound of battle should be interpreted not literally but symbolically. It depicts an imminent battle that fills human hearts and souls with unspeakable dread and fear. It's demoralizing. The third thing, third aspect of this fifth trumpet is a ferocious appearance. As this trumpet sounds, something like the hounds of hell are set loose to hound unbelievers. And this leads to increasing despair for those without Christ. And we've mentioned three aspects. We've observed three aspects of this trumpet judgment here in chapter 8 and 9. A fierce opponent to begin with. Next, a flood of demons released from the abyss to torment unbelievers. And finally, a ferocious appearance. Again, it, it, those of you here who know Christ, and that's a large number of you, I, I, I think you see this horde has already been released in the world around us. Paul says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Those around us, friends, the people you work next to, the people you live next to, desperately need to hear how Christ can set them free from the hounds of hell that dog their steps that they can be set free from slavery to sin and slavery to the evil one. But this morning, if you're here without Christ, you need to hear that in addition to the hounds of hell, somebody else is pursuing you too. And this one is called the Hound of Heaven. It's described like this. The life of Francis Thompson was a downward spiral that landed him on the streets of 19th century London. A useless vagabond, an opium addict, a starving derelict, there God caught him, finally. The son of a doctor, Thompson started out with great potential. His father sent him to study for the priesthood and then to another school to become a doctor. But he failed at both professions and became a wastrel instead, running from responsibility, family, and God. Eventually, this prodigal hit bottom, wandering the back alleys of London. He was hungry, friendless, and addicted to drugs. With tattered clothes and broken shoes, he barely survived by selling matches and newspapers. Still, God did not relent in his dogged chase to capture the young man's soul. A ray of hope came when Thompson began to write poetry. Wilfred Maynell, an editor, immediately saw Thompson's genius. He published his works, encouraged him to enter a hospital, and personally nursed him through his convalescence. This marked a spiritual turnaround in Thompson's life. Thompson described 
his flight from God and God's pursuit of him in a poem he wrote called The Hound of Heaven. Here's an excerpt. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter, still within hurrying chase and unperturbed pace, his deliberate speed, majesty, instancy, came on the following feet, and a voice above their beat. Naught shelters thee who will not shelter me. And he goes on to describe how Christ finally caught him. With this same breathless pursuit, the hound of heaven pursued the Apostle Paul and caught him on a dusty road to Damascus. And if you've yet to trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this hound is also on your heels this morning, pursuing you in His gracious offer of the free gift of forgiveness to anyone who turns to trust in His Son, Jesus. The hound of heaven is hounding you if you don't know Christ. Let me uh, pray for us. I pray, Father, that You would make this passage profitable to us. That from these verses we would understand the culture we live in and see the evidence of those who are being hounded in their souls. But I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to point out to them the hound of heaven as well. You, Father, through Your Son Jesus, and by Your good Spirit, are hot on their heels, pursuing them with the offer of salvation. I pray for anyone here today who has never put their faith in Your Son, Father, that they would feel Your gracious hot breath on their necks. That they would know You are pursuing them, hunting them down in love. And by Your Spirit, You would draw them to turn to Jesus, Your Son, and His gracious offer of forgiveness and cleansing. Father, do Your work in us both as Your children and those who are not Your children uh, today. Do this through Your powerful Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, we're